been very encouraging to me to see um, a number of uh, the young people of our congregation or people who haven't done scripture reading before in the last few weeks to do that. So thanks, Sam. Thanks to others of you who've, who've been willing to help us out in that way. And so I'm very thankful for your ministry along those lines. Obviously, the last few weeks, uh, Rob Pfeiffer was filling in because of everything that was going on for us uh, as uh, we were figuring out what was going on for Kelly and as we were figuring out next steps as far as her treatment. And so, very thankful for his filling in and uh, very thankful for all of you and, and your encouragement over the last few weeks. So, we're picking up here this morning in John chapter 13, uh, just as by way of review we have the fact that Jesus was talking about that the light of the world was going to be crucified in John chapter 12. That he was going to be lifted up, and perhaps one of the most important verses was in verse 36 of John 12, where it says, While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. And then there's this contrast between those who believed in Jesus and those who rejected him, those who... Uh, had seen all of the signs and miracles that he had performed, and yet despite his having done all these miracles, they were blinded, they were found a higher regard for their allegiance for the Pharisees and potential danger for themselves instead of following after Jesus. And so some did truly believe, but many did not. And so, uh, continuing in this story arc of the time period of the Passover, Jesus is going to start in chapter 13 that John records for us from chapter 13 through 17 is basically all these things associated with this evening of the Passover. Uh, just by way of review, uh, the Passover was an important time in the festival calendar for the Israelites in which they remembered God having delivered them from the angel of death as they were preparing to leave Egypt in the Old Testament. Centuries before, it was something that they still observed at the time of Christ, uh, and so Jesus observes it with his disciples. On that evening, shortly before they were to observe it, chapter 13 says, Jesus is aware of a number of things, and he, he does a unique and interesting uh, act, and we want to think about that this morning. Some of the questions associated with this passage are, why do some churches practice washing of feet as a ritual connected with worship? Why do some people see this as an act of service at a wedding or in the context of marriage or family? Uh, is it an ongoing worship ritual, a private ceremony, a cultural artifact from Jesus' day? Is it a lesson for today that goes beyond the mere act itself? And so there's a number of clues in the context that I think we'll see to help us answer these questions. The main point of this passage is this. Serve sinners with your life as Jesus served. Serve sinners with your life as Jesus served. We see, first of all, Jesus served his disciples as one of his final acts. We see this in verses 1 through 11. Why does he do this? Jesus served this way at this moment for a number of reasons. Verse 1 said, his hour had come. Now, if you remember back, for those of you who have been uh, with us in our whole study of John, um, there's been a number of references to Jesus' hour. The Pharisees are plotting against him, trying to seize him. The crowds try to stone him. Uh, there's opposition to him. None of those efforts are successful to this point because his hour had not yet come. But this passage says, 
knowing his hour had come. What was the hour? That he would depart out of this world to the Father. And it was not just that Jesus was going to suddenly abandon his disciples, but the second part of verse 1 points out the fact that he loved his own who were in the world even to the end of his own physical life. The time had come furthermore for Satan to sort of stir up Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. Verse 2, the devil had put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. Jesus was aware of the fact that God was bringing to a close his ministry on earth and had granted him authority and that he had both come from God and was returning to God. Why does John lay all these things out? Not because Jesus needed a reminder, but so that we're aware of all these things in the background of what Jesus does. So what does Jesus do? He takes on himself the manner and actions of a servant in verse 4. This correlates to Matthew 20, 28 and Mark 10, 45, where it says Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When I say he takes on the, the form and the actions of a servant, a servant was not the well-dressed person at a feast. A servant was one who was wearing working clothes. A servant was one who was doing acts of service for people at the house. It would have been a basic thing of hospitality for people who were walking around on dusty roads with, with sandals and so forth. And it wasn't like they had cars and, and bikes and all those sorts of things. A lot of people were just walking wherever they were going. Your feet would be dirty and dusty with the grime of the road. And so it was an act of hospitality to wash feet. But usually it was a servant that did this. But Jesus, in a parallel to the act of service we saw at the beginning of chapter 12, where Mary anoints his feet with the perfume and wipes his feet with her hair, she, she debases, demeans herself as a servant. Jesus, in the same way, dresses as a servant, acts as a servant toward his disciples. This is a further picture, a reminder that Jesus does all the things he does in his ministry as the obedient son, the obedient servant of God the Father. Jesus, however, served by carrying out an everyday task for them to illustrate a deeper spiritual truth. As I already mentioned, he, he washes their feet, much as we saw the lady in the previous chapter wash Jesus' feet. Hers was to anticipate Jesus' death. Jesus, at first glance, just seems to be because that was a normal thing to do in one of these contexts. Peter questions whether Jesus should do this. And we might question too. Because if Jesus is the teacher, if Jesus is the master, if Jesus is the one who's supposed to be their leader, why is he the one having to get down and, and perform this act of service? Why weren't the disciples doing this for each other or even for Jesus? Well, we don't see it here, but we see in another of the Gospels that their focus, because right after this incident in the book of Luke, chapter 22, the disciples are having a discussion. Who's the greatest? Who's going to have the best spot in the kingdom? Who's going to be in charge of the most things? Why are they not serving in this moment? Why does Jesus choose this moment to remind them of these things? Because they're all worried about who's the best, who's the greatest, who's going to have the front of the line, perfect spot, nicest food, most recognition. That's their focus. That's what's in their hearts. And in contrast to that, and even knowing that's how they're going to act in just a few minutes, even in a few hours, Jesus humbles himself to serve. Peter says, Jesus, you shouldn't be doing this. Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus says, 
what I do now you don't realize now, but you'll understand hereafter. Now, if it was simply about Jesus washing Peter's feet, why would he need to say that? Because if it's just, I'm washing your feet, and you see this happen every day, and so let me do it, what is there for Peter to get? This was something that happened regularly. It's not like this was a complicated thing that was happening. We'll come back to that in a moment. Peter objects to what Jesus says, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus says, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Now notice, Jesus says, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Again, did Jesus wash the feet of every person who followed him as one of his disciples? No. What was the significance then of this statement, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me? We'll come back to that in a moment too. Peter then wants Jesus to wash all of him. Well, if we're going to do this, let's just do a bath. Wash my head, wash my hands, wash my feet as well. Jesus points out yet again that this cleansing is not primarily about getting the muck and grime of the daily life off of Peter. What is it about? He says he was bathed and he's only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. So that idea of you are clean, but not all of you, is going to become clear when we see that Judas Iscariot's one of those people sitting there. And Judas Iscariot can't be considered to be clean and a follower of Jesus and one who's believing in Jesus at the same time that he's plotting to betray and kill Jesus. And so it has to be about more than just and this is clear from the context, it's more than just Judas Iscariot didn't take a bath and Peter did. It's not, that's not the, the point. The point is, Jesus is saying, in the same way that someone who's already bathed and then walks around and gets dust on his feet, all he has to do is have his feet washed and he's clean, he's saying, you are all clean in a spiritual sense, and you need to accept this act that I'm doing as a further sign of that cleansing in anticipation of the work that I'm going to do or you have no part with me. So what do we see here? Jesus is preparing for his death. He gives the disciples an illustration of his role as the servant, which I think we're going to see looks toward his crucifixion. His interaction with Peter shows that foot washing is not the main point, the act itself, but an illustration or an opportunity for Jesus to teach them something. This is a role that his disciples have not yet understood, because as I said a moment ago, in Luke 22, right after this happens, they're going to be arguing about who's the greatest. So they, they miss some of the point, the, the main point of what Jesus is doing here. But I think Peter gets it later, and I'll show you why in a moment. In the next section, Jesus explains more. Why does Jesus do this? Let's look at verses 12 through 20. The Lord served his disciples as an example for those who truly believe in him to follow. We see this clearly. Jesus served his disciples as an, an example to follow, verses 12 through 15. He says, do you know what I've done to you? They're like, yeah, you washed our feet. But there's more going on here. He points out the theological significance of what he's done. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. I am your teacher, I am your Lord. All right? That's a given, that's true. All right, so what are we going to do next? He's going to move to the fact that if I'm your teacher in the Lord and I served you in this way, I washed your feet, you ought to similarly wash one another's feet. We'll talk more about what exactly that means in a moment, but verse 15 makes it clear. I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. 
What's the point he's making here? Well, a servant is not above his master. Verse 16, a slave is not greater than his master. The one who sent is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. So as Jesus has humbly served the Father and even his own disciples, his own servants, his servants ought to serve one another, for this also serves him. He is one with his followers. We see that in verse 20. Let's think then about what this means. Does this mean Jesus wants us to practice foot washing as a religious ritual? People who would say yes would say, well, if you just take it at face value, that seems to be what Jesus is saying. He says, if I've washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. Do we see any examples of churches doing this? Yes, there's been a various churches that have done this. Some liturgical practices will example have a, a bishop or so on washing the feet of 12 people that are just sort of selected from the congregation. Uh, furthermore, we see at least, and I don't know exactly when this became uh, kind of a trend, but since 2015, I was looking at, there's different marriage blogs and like, what should people who get married do? This has been kind of a more popular thing to incorporate in the context of a wedding ceremony. Or even some uh, books or websites that say, you know, for couples counseling or, or like how to rebuild your marriage, this can be an act of service to, to sort of reconnect you. What are some reasons, and this is obviously where I'm going with this, what are some reasons for saying that there's more going on here than just the act of getting out a bowl of water and splashing water on someone's foot? The immediate context and the larger context of John argues against taking this at face value. What I want to point out with this is throughout John there's a bunch of times where Jesus has used a physical reality to illustrate a spiritual truth. So think about Nicodemus. Nicodemus in John 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And as much as we want to interpret the Bible literally, that doesn't mean we ignore pictures and figures of speech and miss the point of what he's saying. So when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born again, He's not saying, go be a baby and get birthed a second time, even though that's how Nicodemus takes it at first. He's saying, you need to be changed, to be born again spiritually by the power of God, a second birth, a new life that deals with your sin. John chapter 4, Jesus says, I can give you living water to the Samaritan woman at the well. What does she at first think he's talking about? Actual water from the well. So what's her first question? Where is your bucket? Jesus' point is not, I will give you living water, as in drop water from this physical well in front of it, in front of both of us. The well is a picture of the eternal life that Jesus offers, and he is, in a sense, the well from which the living water comes, not the physical object right in front of them. When Jesus feeds the crowd, what is their response? They're all excited because they're like, well, if we're going to have an army, we need food. And here's a guy who can magically produce food, so let's follow him around and see if he can do it again. And Jesus says not, follow me around so your bellies can be full. Jesus says, believe in me as the bread of life because I am life and food for your soul, and the only way you will have the life that I offer is if you share and partake in believing in me and following after me and being one of my disciples. So all, those are, there's more examples, but those three at the very least illustrate to us that if we take the things that John says and we just 
ignore the context and the symbolism and just say, well, he has to be talking about the object, the act right in front of us, we're potentially missing the point of what's going on. More importantly, note the flow of this passage alongside others. Think about what was said at the beginning. Jesus is about to die. Judas Iscariot is about to betray him. Jesus serves Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, with love to the end. Jesus tells Peter he must humble himself and receive Jesus' humble act or has no part with Jesus. Jesus urges the disciples to follow his example. Jesus is talking about being clean. I'm going to put in brackets from sin because I think that's what it's talking about. He says the eleven are clean. How are they clean? Through Jesus' anticipated work on the cross. Judas Iscariot is not clean because he's going to betray and reject Jesus' work. We'll see the end of his betrayal in the last parts here, the last verses of chapter 13. Peter himself is almost about to follow the same course as Judas Iscariot, which is, I don't need the cleansing that you offer. I'm good. Or do something else than what you've planned, which, as we know from the Gospels, is something that he's done already. He says, well, let's do this instead. We don't want you to die, Jesus. Let's just stay on this mountaintop forever at the point of the transfiguration. So Peter, in his misunderstanding and his sort of brash nature, is about to follow after Judas, not out of a desire to betray Jesus, but out of a misunderstanding of God's purpose and plan. That's what we see from this immediate context. Let's zoom out for a second and look at the whole context of the Bible and what it says about some of these topics. Psalm 51.7, David acknowledges that we need cleansing from God because of our sin. What sort of sin is David talking about in Psalm 51? David has committed adultery and murder and betrayal of God because he lusts after a woman, commits adultery with her, conspires to have her husband killed in battle to try to cover it up, and in so doing has rejected God, at least for that moment, while he's committing those wicked acts. And so David, overwhelmed with his sinfulness, says, God, wash me thoroughly and I shall be cleaned. Purify me and I will be whiter than snow. David, in the Psalms, acknowledges that we need cleansing from sin. 1 John 1.7, which John the Apostle, who writes this book, is going to write later, says that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Hebrews 10.22, which we looked at when we studied through Hebrews a year or so ago, talks about the fact that we can come boldly before God into God's presence because we've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, our bodies washed with pure water. There has been cleansing associated with Jesus' death and resurrection that we have been able to participate in. What then is Jesus cleansing for? It's an act of service. As I already mentioned, Mark 10.45, I came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. Philippians 2, Jesus is described to have humbled himself taking on him the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men, even to the point of death on the cross. Peter, in the next little section we'll look at next week, says, you know what? I'm ready to follow you, Jesus. I'm ready to lay down my life for you. Verse 37 of chapter 13. Jesus says, actually, you're not ready. You're going to betray me three times. Jesus, in contrast, is actually going to lay down his life. John 15, verses 12 through 14. Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if, I do, if you do what I command you. 
And then we know from the description of the crucifixion at the end of the book of John, Jesus actually is crucified. He lays down His life for His friends, for His people. Now, we have to be careful here because we cannot cleanse the sin of another person. But we can humbly serve and forgive one another following Jesus' example, and we can sacrificially serve people up to and even in the point of death because Jesus did. Jesus humbles himself to serve Judas Iscariot, a betrayer, and loves him to the end despite Judas' betrayal. Jesus is portrayed in this passage as being willing and ready to forgive Judas Iscariot up until the point when Judas takes the bread and Satan possesses him and he goes out to meet, to meet with the religious leaders and, and, and get paid for betraying Jesus. Jesus is ready and willing to forgive. Jesus is serving even up until the point of his death. Going back to the passage. Look at verses 18 through 20, chapter 13. Only those who really belong to Jesus will serve in this way. Jesus served even Judas Iscariot to fulfill the picture of the Bible in which David was betrayed by those closest to him. Jesus would be betrayed by one of his own disciples. Jesus says, I don't speak to all of you because I know Judas Iscariot is sitting there and he's going to talk about that more in a moment. I know the ones that I've chosen. Why then is all this going on? So that the scripture may be fulfilled. And what scripture needs to be fulfilled? Psalm chapter 41 and verse 9 when it says, The one who's eaten my own bread has lifted himself up against me. David, in Psalm 41, is probably thinking of one of the several instances when his own family members try to overthrow him as king. We know this to be the case. Absalom is the, the, the biggest example we think of. His own son, his own son that he loves very dearly, organizes all the people, says, Yeah, my dad used to be a good king, not so much anymore. I can be your friend. I can help you out. Turns the hearts of the people against David. David has to flee for his life from the capital of Jerusalem. His own son betrays him. What's the connection with Jesus? When it says the scripture has to be fulfilled, there is this story arc that corresponds between David's experience and Jesus' experience, where David, the greatest of the kings of the Old Testament, failed miserably on many cases. Jesus succeeds. And where David experienced certain things like betrayal and like loss and like sorrow, Jesus experienced it all the more, but in a way that honors God. And so David was betrayed by his own family. Jesus is betrayed by his own disciple, Judas Iscariot, who is trusted so much by the other disciples that he's the one in charge of the money, who nobody knows that he is what he is, seemingly. Because in the previous chapter, what's he, what's he saying? He's the one who's saying, oh, why would this woman waste all this money on this perfume on Jesus? We should have sold that and given it to the poor. Judas Iscariot has portrayed himself as the, the most religious of people. Jesus knows his heart, and yet despite the fact that Jesus knows his heart, Jesus serves him anyway. Why else does this happen in the way that it happens? Verse 19, Jesus says, I'm telling you it's going to happen before it happens, so when it happens, you'll look back on it, you'll understand, and you'll know that my words are true, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Jesus is speaking prophetically about something that they don't even know is going to happen. He says it's going to happen when they look back on these moments and remember that he said it, they will be reminded that his words are true and from God. 
And then Jesus reminds them, as I already mentioned, verse 20, of the connection, the bond between Jesus and true disciples. He who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So if you receive my followers, you receive me, and if you receive me, you receive God the Father. And so there's this unbroken link, this close connection, this tight unity between Jesus and his disciples and God the Father. So having illustrated the sort of service that Jesus calls his disciples to, he now moves to the moment of betrayal. Judas Iscariot has heard Jesus' words and still doesn't want to repent. So now Jesus is betrayed. We see that the time of betrayal has come. Verse 21, When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. So even though Jesus says, I'm being betrayed, they don't understand. Jesus says, one of you. Now, at this moment, Judas Iscariot has the opportunity to say, It's me. I'm wrong. I I repent. I'm not going to do it. But he says nothing. The disciples are all looking around. Who is it? Who can it be? They're at a loss, verse 22, to know of which one he's speaking. So, Jesus and the disciples are at this feast. They're, they're, They're reclining on their side at the sort of a low table, observing the feast. And Peter is kind of across the table over here. Any of you ever seen the picture of the Last Supper, Leonardo da Vinci, right? The Last Supper. They're all sitting at the table next to each other, a long row. It's not how it actually was. They would have been reclining at a much lower table, sort of all lean, propped up like this. So Peter is somewhere over here, and he waves to John. We say John. It says here, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm not going to go into all of that, but let's just, for sake of argument, say that it's John, and I believe that it is. He waves to John. He's like, ask him who it is. So John leans over to Jesus. He says, Lord, who is it? What does Jesus say? Jesus says, verse 26, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Now, what this means is, Judas Iscariot had to have been pretty close to Jesus for him to dip the morsel into uh, the sauce, whatever it was, the elements of the Passover that are there, and then hand it to him. Potentially, Judas Iscariot is sitting next to Jesus on this side, and John is sitting on this side. So think about the scene. One of you is going to betray me. Judas could confess. He doesn't. The disciples want to know who it is, so Peter gets John to ask. John's there right next to Jesus, leans over and says, Who is it? Jesus says, It's the one whom I dip this and give it to him. He dips it. He gives it to him. The one who eats my own bread has lifted himself up against me. Jesus hands him the piece of bread. They still don't understand. He took and gave it, verse 26, to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Up to this point, Scripture holds out the possibility that Judas Iscariot could have repented, that Judas Iscariot could have turned from his sin. What does he do instead? He refuses to repent, and he is possessed by Satan, and Jesus says, what you're going to do, go do it now. What do the disciples think? 
No one knew what was going on, verse 28. Some thought because Judas had the money box, Jesus was saying, buy the things we need for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. It was common to give money to the poor at the time of Passover. It was common to need a few last-minute things in preparation for the feast. They figure he's the guy who's got the money. Jesus is sending him on an errand. So after receiving the morsel, he, Judas Iscariot, went out immediately, and it was night. And there's symbolism in that too. Judas Iscariot, now possessed by Satan, goes out into the night, and the darkness is about to fall. The crucifixion is about to happen. All of these things are about to take place. The hour has come. So what are we supposed to do with a passage like this? Well, let's start with one of the obvious ones. Do you feel betrayed? Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot and was willing to serve those who are the one who is betraying him. And so what I would say to you, all of you and to myself is, we have to be willing to serve even those that we think have betrayed us. Now sometimes we feel as though someone's betrayed us and they haven't actually because we've misunderstood the situation or we've read into it in some way. And sometimes people actually have betrayed us. They've said something hurtful about us to other people that they didn't think that we would ever find out. They have harmed us in some way. They've actually betrayed us. What does Jesus do? Jesus serves even the one who, as God, he knows is going to betray him, and he serves him anyway. Not because you should do the same, not because your actions will necessarily save that person or in every case lead them to repentance, but because you are to be like your master, you are to be like Jesus that you claim to follow. So willingly and humbly serve those even who betray you. Are you willing to, or maybe moving to the next one, are you possibly the betrayer? Are you the one who's sinning against someone? You've betrayed their trust. You've done them wrong. You've sinned against them in some way. If there is this element of hope in this passage where Jesus announces what's going to happen and gives Judas Iscariot an opportunity to repent, you have the opportunity to repent. How long does that last? Well, I mean, some people have said as long as there's life, there's hope, and that's probably true to a certain extent. But there may be a point in your life at which God confirms you in your unbelief and you have no desire to repent past that point. So sometimes when we hear the voice of conscience saying, you've sinned, you've sinned, you've sinned, and we keep saying, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care, Romans 1 says there's a point at which God gives people over to abandon themselves to do their sin and seemingly withdraws the opportunity of repentance. Now again, you and I can't evaluate when that is, and so I don't want us to try to guess at that. But my point is just to say, sometimes we think, well, I'll do whatever I want for as long as I want, and then right before I die, I'm going to follow Jesus. If God lets you go your own way, you may get to that point and you may not even want to turn to Jesus and you have missed your window, your opportunity for salvation. What does God say about salvation? He says, now is the appointed time, now is the day of salvation. This point's been driven home to me the last few weeks, just like it was three years ago. When Maggie was diagnosed with her brain tumor, 
I didn't know if I was going to see her after that surgery when they took it out. When Kelly was diagnosed with, with cancer in the last few weeks, we didn't know at first whether we were going to have a few more days, a few more weeks, or however long. We still don't know that. The point is, we can think that our entire life lasts and is laid out in front of us, but you can die when you're 16. You could die leaving this morning and leaving this afternoon in your car. I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm just trying to stress to you. We think that we can sort of finagle things so that we can go our own way, and then we'll still have this chance, this last dish effort, this this final prayer on our deathbed to turn to Jesus. Judas Iscariot hit the point at which Jesus had had loved him and given him opportunities to repent. And at this point. Satan enters into him, he goes to betray Jesus, he commits suicide, and he's done. So don't abandon the opportunity for repentance that this passage holds out for you. I think a further application for those of us who strive to follow after God as his people, do you lay down your life for others? The service that Jesus illustrates here is not just an outward ritual. I have no plans for us to start washing feet in the service for a number of reasons, but primarily because I don't think that's actually the point of this passage. The point of this passage, for one, many churches that try to observe it don't observe it the way that Jesus described. He said, I want all of you to do this for each other, and and they just have like a, a token person up front doing it. But even beyond that, these kinds of things, if they are not specifically commanded by Scripture, and what I believe Jesus is commanding is serve one another sacrificially, not perform an outward ritual. These sorts of things often become opportunities for pride and hypocrisy. There's been a lot of people in the history of the church who have thought, well, it would be a good idea if... and then that becomes a burden that they have laid on the next generation to do. This happened with the law in the Old Testament. God said things like, honor the Sabbath, And then the Pharisees came along and they're like, you can only walk 50 feet. And if your neighbor is hurting, you know, sorry, you can't really help him out. And all of these other sorts of things. They added all these extra rules and regulations because they thought it would be a good idea because they wanted to be really careful. They didn't disobey this. So they added all of these things. What ended up happening? They did these things instead of what God actually wanted them to do, which was to honor him and love their neighbors as themselves. And so there's a danger for us when we see a passage like this that we think that what we're being called to is an easy ritual that we do once a month and then we're off the hook for the rest of the time. We can kind of do whatever we want. I wash someone's feet at church, so I don't have to do ministries of encouragement or show hospitality or meet someone's needs in this way because I'm already good because I did this thing. I can check it off my list. Or in a personal setting, we can say, well, you know, I've done this toward this person in my family this, this outward ritual, this one-time act. And so I'm good the rest of this week. When they need help with something and I'm tired and I don't feel like it, I don't have to do it. When um, I don't want to listen to a conversation because I want to just go relax, and I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not obligated to take the time to listen carefully to what they're saying and, and spend time and, and minister to them in that way because I already did my thing for this week. Um, when I, when I say, well, you know, I don't, I don't have to take time to read the Bible and pray together and all those sorts of things because, because I did my thing for this week. 
There's a danger of pride and thinking, well, I did this one thing, so I don't need to worry about anything else. There's also a danger of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, because the more that I read through the Bible, the more I'm convinced that often the people who are most invested in the outward rituals, like the Pharisees were, are secretly behaving sinfully when they think no one is watching. Or even just in their hearts, not even outside where everybody can see. The Pharisees tithed, but Jesus says, hey, you guys hate widows. There's this lady starving next door to you, but you're tithing one eighth of an ounce of some spice you bought at the market and thinking God's happy with you. The Pharisees prayed publicly, Lord, look at how religious we are and how much we love you. And then the next day they go and they meet together and they're like, how can we kill Jesus? Because we really don't like the things he's saying and how he's leading the people away. That same kind of hypocrisy can enter into our hearts. We do this outward ritual when we're at church and we want to look like we're at church and we want to look like we're doing the things that everybody thinks we ought to do and then we go home and we call each other names or we uh, are selfish in some way or we uh, waste all of our time instead of building relationships with one another. We just go do whatever feels right to us instead of serving the way God calls us to serve. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to paint a picture like this is the only possibility. Hopefully, you are faithfully serving even the people who betray you, even the people who have done wrong to you in some way, and you are ready and willing to forgive them as Jesus was ready and willing to forgive even someone like Judas Iscariot. Perhaps you are faithfully serving in the church. There is a description in 1 Timothy 5.10 of godly widows who are faithfully serving in the church, and it says, let them be put on the list for the church to look after. And one of the criteria was they're faithfully serving. They've washed the saints' feet. They've served in, in various ways. And if that's you, that you are serving and forgiving those who betray you, and you are faithfully serving sacrificially fellow believers in the context of the church, then keep up the good work. Continue to be an example, but realize that what God has called us to is hard. So there's going to come a point at which you've been doing the right thing and your strength and motivation and ability to do it is over with. You're like, I'm not going to do that for that person one more time. You know what you need then? Technically what you needed all along, you need Jesus' strength and power, the work of the Spirit to sustain you in doing the right that God has called you to do. So in those moments, and even before those moments, cry out to God for help, and He will help you. If you belong to Him, God has said, I will help you. And so this passage teaches us to serve sinners with our lives, even as Jesus served. By serving even those who sin against and betray us, by serving even to the point of pouring out our lives on the behalf of other believers, because then we're like our Master, and then we are obedient to His example here in John chapter 13. Because as verse 20 said, in that moment when we serve that other person, we are serving Jesus himself and God the Father himself, and he is pleased with what we're doing. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. This is a difficult passage. There is a lot going on in it. Lord, I pray that we would not take the easy way out and say, well, if I just can do this one thing once a month, once a week, once every few months, then I've done all the things you called me to do. We look at the, the, the depth of the sacrifice and love that it would have taken for Jesus to serve Judas Iscariot, knowing in the next moment he's going to betray him, and he serves him anyway. And, and we have people do 
sometimes minor sins, sometimes big sins against us, and, and we're like, I, I would never forgive that person. That's not being like Jesus, Lord. Or we see you calling us to serve people in ways when we're, when we're tired, when we feel like we've done the same thing over and over, when any number of factors enter into it, and we say, I, I don't really want to do this anymore. Lord, help us to, to realize that we need your strength to sustain us in this task because to serve others, even up to the point of laying down our lives, like Paul said, we were delighted to share not only the gospel but also our own lives with you Thessalonians and his ministry to them. That kind of sacrifice requires divine strength to carry out. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see all the more that we need to depend on you. If we, in fact, are the one who is behaving like Judas Iscariot in this passage, betraying others, committing great sin against you, bring us to repentance, Lord. Maybe for the first time, maybe for one of many times that you will bring us to repentance. Wherever we find ourselves, Lord, give us the grace to love and to honor you, to serve as you have served to serve one another because then we are truly serving you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.